Welcome to the One Haas Alumni Podcast. Today we have our second installment of our mini-series on high-impact teaming. And joining me is my co-host, Dr. Brandy Pierce, and our guest and Haas alumni, Nandita Batra of the Full-Time MBA 2013 program. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Thank you, Sean. Nandita, welcome. We're so delighted to have you here. We'd love to just start off by hearing a little bit about you, where you're from, where you studied, a bit of your background, just to get us started. I'm actually going to go way back to the beginning. Uh, yes, so please. <laughs> I, <laughs> I was born in India. I'm of Indian origin. When I was five, my family um, migrated to Australia. So I spent most of my formative childhood years in Australia up till the age of 15. And then I moved to the United States. I said I'll go all the way back to the beginning because on the surface, Australia and the United States are very similar countries. But having spent my childhood between two countries really shaped who I am as a person and how I see the world and my passion for other cultures, which I'm sure we'll talk more about through this podcast. So age 15, moved to the U.S., uh, to Southern California, and then I went to undergrad in Chicago at, at Northwestern, which was another great experience. You know, I lived in a very suburban part of Southern California in, in Orange County. So going to Chicago was a, a welcome view of reality, the hard lives that people have. I just remember riding the L, which is the, the train in Chicago, and seeing people, you know, that are coming back from their second job at 3 a.m., Right. So I really appreciated that perspective. So at Northwestern, I double majored in economics and English, which I think really encapsulates my equal parts left brain and right brain orientation. And I have to say, it's it's many years later that I've seen the true value of having that kind of liberal arts education. And actually, it's given me really valuable communication skills and empathy skills. My entire career has been in strategy and operations. I did strategy consulting then I went into corporate strategy for a food and beverage company in Dallas, Texas, which was another great perspective shifting experience. Right. Then came to Haas, loved my time at Haas. And then after Haas, I went back into consulting with a twist. So I actually moved to Paris and did consulting full-time there for two years in the Paris office. And then uh, it was a great experience. Um, but I was ready to like come back home. So I moved back to the Bay Area five years ago. And then I worked for an e-commerce company in a, a series of like business operations and general management roles. So that's where I kind of like blended strategy and, and business operations. I am currently working at Google in a strategy and operations role, working with uh, product teams in that capacity. It's fun to hear your whole arc of your story. It reminds me a little bit of my own trajectory. So I too was an econ major, but my deep passion was psychology. And so then I, I guess I had to go back and get a PhD and do that. And I'm curious, as I hear this story, I think one of the places you talked a little bit about when you were on a panel for one of my classes was your experience in Paris and how pivotal that was for you in terms of your own growth as a leader. And I'd just love to hear a little bit more about that experience, what led you to Paris to make this pivot, and maybe a moment that was particularly influential or memorable for you. Yeah, absolutely. So I, I graduated from Haas, and I'd say Haas was a, a very formative experience. And then I went to Paris, and that ended up being, I think, the most formative and transformative experience in my life thus far. 
and just the fact of living and working in another culture. You're so far out of your comfort zone. And I knew French. I had studied French in school. I had to pass an unofficial French test to be able to work out of the Paris office. But when you're working in a foreign language, well, 14 hours a day, it's a very different experience. And the language was just one layer. The second layer was the cultural context. And so very quickly, I started working and I realized I didn't have the cultural context because I hadn't grown up in that environment. Mm. Things like reading tone, reading body language are somewhat culturally specific. And so how do I increase my sort of cultural fluency or competency? I started watching a lot of French movies. That's what I would do. And, and you know, I was still <laughs> getting settled, still getting to know people. And Paris is a city where it's quite hard to break into social circles. Yeah. So I took advantage of that to go out and watch a lot of French movies and just gather that cultural context. It was also on a personal level, fantastic. I got the most amazing cultural experience in the sense of arts and culture because Paris is just a city that is abounding with museums and not just traditional forms of art, but also there's a lot of contemporary art and design and innovation, maybe not in the Silicon Valley way, but innovation in a very Parisian way happening. So that was uh, fantastic. And then professionally, I think I, I grew a lot working in another country in a system where you don't have much of a support network. Um, it really helps you build like grit and resilience. And it was also fun, fun and challenging, but, you know, I, in summary, sort of fun to observe the different interactions I would have with people and unpack the cultural nuances and really understand the people and the culture and, and what shaped them. And I'll just give an example to illustrate. So the French education system is, is quite harsh. You'll take a test, just a routine test, and it's graded out of 20. And a grade of 14 out of 20 is considered a good grade. Whereas in the U.S., 14 out of 20, like, <laughs> you've got kids asking for, you know, a regrade, parents calling in extra credit. That's not a great grade. And you see that kind of mindset play out as people grow up, move into the workforce. In the United States, I think it translates into this spirit that the sky is the limit. You can think really big and go really far. And in France, it translates into more of a conservative approach in the business world. And also, I would say the feedback culture is more constructive, if you will. And I remember my international classmates at Haas would always say, what is this compliment sandwich like this that we have to <laughs> use in the U.S.? This feels so forced. And I think this was perhaps my most significant takeaway or thing that I brought back with me. In the United States, you come to the table, you're sitting across the table from a partner, a CEO, whoever you're sitting across the table from, you come to the table as equal humans. There's a difference in your rank, there's a difference in your title, but in your humanity, you're equal. Hmm. Working in France, I certainly felt that was different. Your workplace hierarchy, I think, translated into a very different relationship in how you connected as human beings. And so I really value that because now I've, I've, I came back to the U.S. and brought this perspective that everybody's a person and just approaching everybody as a person and, and seeing their humanity and treating everybody as an equal human being, whether they're someone senior to you or someone junior to you, I think is a really valuable mindset to have. It's something I'm really grateful for.
It's interesting to think about these moments that we have in other contexts and how when something's missing, it makes us more aware of it upon our return. I am curious as you think about that experience, particularly one of the things you talked about initially was language. So as we think about leading global teams, sometimes this is the unspoken component of globalization. It has such a huge impact on how we communicate with others. What were some things that you discovered being in an environment where this was not necessarily your native tongue and what it felt like to be negotiating and trying to engage in your environment? How did language play out? That is a great question. I felt, you're going to laugh, but I felt like I had, my Maybe. brain had two processors, <laughs> one that functioned in English and one that functioned in French. And I could probably feel that my brain would have to shift from one mode to the other. So I could communicate in French, but all my cognitive ability happened in English because I had done all my schooling in English. All those neural pathways had been wired in English. <laughs> so there was this mental switching cost that was constantly going on in my head. And so I'd say for folks leading global teams, really important to be mindful of almost a mental tax of working in a different language. That's one. And it can be very exhausting. And then I'd love to take this actually a little bit further and talk about the cultural layers below that. And again, if, if you're leading global teams or working with global teams, I highly recommend picking up a couple of foundational books with cultural frameworks that describe the differences in how people perceive time or how they view hierarchy uh, or how they value harmony. I read some of these frameworks before I went to Paris just to educate myself and ground myself. And they are so helpful. Of course, they are generalizations, but they are so helpful for even becoming aware of all the things that we assume are normal in our American-centric business culture. So I was working on a project when I was in France with a Japanese automaker. And one of the learnings for myself and for my French colleagues was that the way the Japanese approach their work is they spend a lot of time up front gaining alignment on the plan, making sure everybody's bought in on the plan. Hmm. Once they have alignment on the plan, it's go, 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 execute. Whereas right. the French approach, I think, is a little bit more fluid. They're revising the plan as they go along. And so we had a cross-border team working across France and Japan. And that actually created some tension on the team because initially we weren't aware of the different cultural norms and expectations that shaped our work. Hmm. So if you had been the lead in that moment, what might you have done differently as you brought these two teams together from different parts of the world, getting ready to engage in this joint project? I would have done two things. One is have sort of a kickoff with the counterpart team. In this case, they were in Japan to talk about work styles, expectations, and to do that on more of a peer to peer level or like we're all part of the same firm. So let's uh, align recognizing that we are going to be working cross-culturally. Let's surface the assumptions that we have about how we approach our work. And the other thing I would do, and probably as a precursor to this, is educate the French team, spend some time as a French team educating ourselves on Japanese business practices and culture. A lot of cultures are less direct than the United States. I'd say the United States and Scandinavian countries can be fairly direct in what we say. A lot of cultures, particularly Asian cultures, are much more indirect. There's also greater value placed on preserving the relationship. 
And so if you know that context going in, you'll be more mindful that your Japanese colleagues may not tell you up front in a very direct way, oh, no, we absolutely have to align on the plan first, and then we execute. So I think you have to do both sides, educate yourself and then have an open conversation with your teammates. And often a lot of this does feel like you've got a blindfold on and you're feeling your way through the dark. And I will say one of the things that I gained working abroad was it really sharpened my intuition and my ability to listen to my intuition. Mm. And so I'd say that's an important skill to lean on in these cross-cultural contexts. Don't just focus on what the person is saying, but take in all those additional nonverbal cues. And that's all information. That's all data to put it in MBA or tech speak. (laughs) I mean, that's actually interesting to think about intuition. So I want to just ask you, like, from your perspective, how do you think about intuition? What does that mean to you as a leader? And it's interesting because it goes back to this topic that we started with, which was the balance between economics and English or economics and psychology. We tend to be very data-driven, and yet there's this other component of leadership that is a bit more intuitive. And I'm curious, what does that mean to you, and how do you think about it? There's two ways I think about this. So one is I think in the context of running a business, making business decisions. I'm obviously very data-driven having an economics background and I enjoy numbers and, and using data to inform decisions. But because I also have this background in English, which I think has developed really strong empathy skills, I also see the value of just taking a step back and looking beyond the data and asking yourself, does this make sense? I've spent a lot of my career working in uh, consumer products and retail. And so I always take a step back and say, does this make sense for the consumer? Is this a convincing reason for the consumer to buy this product? Just to give you a really tangible example, when I was working at Shutterfly on our mobile app business, we had seen this sort of slow deterioration in one of our product lines. But it was hard to pin down. Some days it was up, some days it was down. It wasn't quite clear, but over time, it seemed like it was trending down. And started to diagnose it, working with the analytics team, cutting the data many different ways, and could not find a root cause or a reason why this was down. Looked at price, looked at volume, looked at product mix. And then I took a step back and just looked at the product experience on the app. And we had recently rolled out some you know, upgrades to the experience. And I looked at it as a consumer, no data, just as a consumer. What the experience did was auto crop photos. So it was meant to save the, the consumer time. But my observation was that actually the auto cropping was not um, perfect every time. And so as a consumer, to, you had to review all the photos and adjust them. And that could end up taking more time. And so that's an example of where the data couldn't yield the insight, but the intuition, the ability to take a step back and look at it from a consumer lens and from a more qualitative lens actually helped us diagnose the key issue. And then we basically rolled back that feature and saw our sales start to slowly recover. Uh, I said two things around intuition. So that's one, right? In the context of making business decisions. And then the second one is intuition in terms of leading teams and leading people. This is where reading the nonverbal cues, reading the interactions between people in a room. One of the things I find myself naturally drawn to is listening for tensions. So if you'll be in a room, let's say it's it's a cross-functional team, and sometimes you hear people are almost talking past each other. Not that they're talking over each other, but person A is saying X and person B is saying Y, and it seems like they're completely at odds. I love those moments because 
Every function plays a role. They all represent a certain perspective and it's helping each of those teams see where the other one is coming from and being able to bridge that and, and recognize the mutual goals and come to mutual alignment and be able to move forward. I think that's so um, important. And also, I personally find it so rewarding as a leader. It's interesting to think about this place, this sweet spot of a team where you have the capacity to bring different perspectives together, have some ability to put yourself in someone else's shoes, understand where they may be coming from, draw that in, synthesize it into how you may approach a problem and then create that integrative solution. And it's interesting to think about how travel helps inform our ability to do this effectively. You've had a a lot of experience working in large global organizations like Google and BCG. As you think about your evolution as a leader and leading teams and others, what do you think drew you to this type of work and these kinds of organizations? As I've gone through my career, I have come to appreciate that I actually really enjoy complexity. I like working in complex environments or working with complex problems and looking at how do we distill it down? How do we simplify it into the component pieces which need to be addressed? That could be for a business problem or an organizational or interpersonal problem. And then as I've gone through my career, I have also seen that I really enjoy working with people, influencing and leading people. And I think if you asked me out of undergrad, that is not the first thing I would have said because... (laughs) I had this perception of people, person as the life of the party, um, the person that is working the room at a networking event. That's certainly not who I was at that point in time. I'm, I'm more of an introvert by nature. But when it comes down to it, the central theme of my career actually is people. Whether it's the time I spent working in consumer products and retail, what drew me and what kept me engaged the whole time was thinking about the consumer and what they need and how we can best serve them. And the other manifestation was the part that's internal to the organization, working with teams, aligning teams, and moving organizations forward. One of the things you talked a little bit about is introversion. Mm -hmm. So we do tend to have an archetype of leader as extrovert. And yet we're starting to know that introverts actually have some skills and capabilities that make them very effective leaders, particularly of knowledge-based teams, where we have to listen to others' perspectives and integrate ideas. So I'm curious about your experience being an introvert and developing as a leader. What are some of the challenges you've faced and where are the places that you think your introverted self actually serves you well? Yes, I love this question. Thank you for giving voice to introversion. (laughs) I've got a few of those in my family. (laughs) (laughs) So I think actually working in business has been really great for me to, I can't say I've grown out of my introversion, I'm still an introvert, but to expand the boundaries, right, and develop a more extroverted style than I think I would have had if I had gone into a career path, say, academia. So I'm actually really grateful for the experience in business. For me, navigating this is a matter of managing my energy. So I find 
if I have too many meetings in a day or too many back-to-back meetings, that's quite exhausting for me. And so what I would do is organize my day so that I'd keep my mornings open for work time, for emails, for thinking. And my afternoons is when I would try to schedule my meetings. And so that has been quite effective. In this time of COVID, Mm. it's actually been very illuminating. I like being in quiet environments. So working from home has given me that mental, physical space and that quiet environment. I'm able to focus a lot more and it actually helps me sustain my energy levels throughout the day. So COVID in that respect has been a blessing in managing my energies. I have heard, I've heard parents say that for their students um, and for their kids, it's the introverted students that are doing better during COVID and the extroverted kids are having a much harder time. I Based on my own experience, I can relate to that or agree with that in the workplace. Are you noticing that at all with your teams, Uh, a difference in how people are showing up in the team environment in COVID on introversion and extroversion? I actually changed organizations within Google a week before everybody started working from home. So I've been actually navigating building relationships and getting to know the team in a virtual world. And it is a little bit harder because what you lose is all those organic water cooler type conversations. Because now all my interactions are I show up on a Google Hangouts call with a bunch of other people, there's less space for chit chat, and particularly for one on one, more informal interactions. Yeah, we were just talking about this, actually, before you came on. Oh, yeah, how it's it's one huge missing element are those casual interactions, right? Because once you're on a call, once you're on a Google Hangout, you're committed to this person for the next 10, 15 minutes at least versus working the room, as you were saying earlier, you can sample the room and and just get to talk to different people. Yeah, building on that, and you mentioned working the room. So in this role, I run a regular meeting that has about 35 attendees and it's kind of a business overview, soup to nuts, looking at uh, progress and performance across all parts of the business. I've only run this meeting virtually, but I do think if I had to run this meeting in a room, it would be more exhausting than running it virtually because you are surrounded by so many people and there's so much collective energy that for an introvert, that can actually be overwhelming. So that's Mm. been an interesting insight for me. It's not just the volume of interaction or the number of interactions, but also like the physical presence that can shape the experience also. Makes sense. What do you think are some of the benefits as a leader of being introvert? Where has being an introvert served you as a leader? The first thing that comes to mind, and you mentioned this, is the ability to listen and truly listen, not just to what a person is saying, but to those, the conversations that are happening between people. If I'm not running a meeting or presenting, I'm typically observing and taking in things around me, how people are engaging with the meeting, how they're responding to different things. And I I called it data before, and I'm going to repeat that again, because in I think our culture, we don't traditionally think of that as data, but I think it's super valuable data. So that's definitely, I think, a strength. And then in the workplace, we have extroverts and introverts. And just being an introvert, I think, allows you to empathize with other introverts and help them find space to find their voice in their comfort zone, which is also really important. One of the things that you talked about in the very beginning that I did want to loop back to was 
you mentioned the idea of innovation in the Parisian way versus the Silicon Valley way. And I'm curious, what is the difference between those two types of innovation from your perspective? So French culture is traditionally more conservative, right? Business culture is more conservative and from a, like a fiscal perspective, decision-making tends to be more conservative. And so I think it's an interesting perspective because one of the principles of innovation that I learned early in my career that I always come back to is that innovation is born out of constraints. And so a conservative society actually presents a lot of constraints. The flip side is in the American society, and I talked earlier about how our educational system encourages this mindset that anything is possible. So there is a lot of big thinking. Now, I think if you're an, uh, an entrepreneur and you took your idea to the to a, a French VC versus an American VC, you would have to show a much higher burden of proof. There'd be much more scrutiny around your numbers, your growth projections in the French VC. And you can see that conservatism, that fiscal conservatism manifest in that way. Mm. That makes so much sense. In the US, we have Peter Diamandis preaching exponential growth, 10x. Everything's unlimited, right? <laughs> it's just unlimited potential. Mm -hmm. And on the flip side, then you have the French like, you know, avant-garde. And even the word guard huh. is in this phrase that for us, it, it means being forward thinking. That's very interesting. Yeah. I never thought of that. It's so fun to explore and play and think about different cultures and how we look at a problem, which actually brings me to another question that came up in the very beginning of the conversation, which was around feedback. And I think of feedback as being a critical component of innovation, but also as we think about teams, so supporting teams in their development of reflexivity, which is a team capacity for reflection and feedback is really critical. How does feedback show up in different cultures and how is it experienced in different cultures? And I'd love to get a sense from you, not only about your experience being in Paris, but also just broadly working in an organization like Google that is very culturally diverse how do you think about feedback and how are you sensitive to the nuances of culture? Yeah, it's really interesting. When you work for a global company, often there is a company culture and that company culture sometimes is larger or almost like supersedes the national culture. Doesn't mean that the national cultural nuances don't exist, but if there is a common company culture, then it can be easier to have these kinds of conversations. Or there's some common norms that are understood and accepted at the company. I, I encourage everyone, by the way, to talk to teammates of yours, colleagues, peers from different cultures, whether they are they have moved to the U.S. in the last few years or whether they're based in a different office. And really get to know them because that will give you really valuable insight into their culture, how they approach problems. You know, Brandy, you mentioned problems earlier, and I would add to that problems, but also relationships and decision-making. So really take that time. And if you're a student at Haas, like you have, you're in the best place right now to do that because you have access to so many peers from so many different countries. I always say that's the real asset of being an MBA student at Haas is this international component and being able to leverage people from all these diverse perspectives to really 
think deeply about leadership and what that looks like and how we connect with others and lead in these different contexts. So sorry, I interrupt. It's actually perfect. I will build right on that. I love talking to my international classmates when I was a student at Haas. And one of the the common sort of frustrations I, I would hear from them about American culture is that things feel transactional. And I'd hear this from my classmates who were from Asia, as well as my classmates who were from South America, because a lot of other cultures place a high value on relationships and you you can't really reach out to someone when you're interested in a job in their company, you don't know them. There's no relationship to build on. So I encourage everyone to take the time to get to know um, people from other cultures. That will help you get more insight into what other cultures value and what's considered normal. And I think it's also a really important kind of mirror on what we take for granted in American culture. And because American culture has traditionally been so influential in the business world, um, in some ways, that can often become the, the default culture of what we view as the default culture. So it's important to be aware of our own assumptions. If I can just throw in a little quick story yeah, here. When I, I was in, in France working in consulting, I attended a training on executive presence. So I had to do these role plays on the spot in French, which is fun. And one of the role plays was to kick off a you know client meeting, a working team session. So I got up, I did my little kickoff, and afterwards the coach said, great job, you guys, you Americans, you have the art of the meeting. In France, we have the art of conversation, <laughs> but you Americans have the art of the meeting. <laughs> <laughs> it was just so funny. I mean, that was one of those mirror moments for me where like in America, yeah, it is all down to business. He was very polite and saying the art of the meeting. But you will see that in American business meetings are they're, they're pretty agenda driven, pretty d- decision making driven and, t- and to the point, which is not as common in cultures that are place more emphasis on the relationship first. I'm curious when you're in a context where you're recognizing that there's a need for this blending of the focus of the meeting and the focus of the relationship, are there things that you do as a leader to bridge those worlds? So I'm going to share a story that's related to your question. It's not in the context of global cultures, but Mm. cross-functional teams. So when I was at Shutterfly, I was bringing along one of the cross-functional partners and I was focused on empowering them to take more of a lead and give them more space for their ideas. And so it started with setting up a cadence saying, hey, we've got to do our annual holiday planning. Can you guys take the lead on this part? And I will take the lead on this part and we'll have this series of meetings to share the plans. And in that first meeting where we came together and I shared, these are our business objectives and goals. How can we translate this into our execution? At the end, I just, I brought cupcakes and cider. And that small gesture really went a long way for making that team feel connected and appreciated. I, you know, once worked for a leader who said, build the team first, and then you figure out what you have to do. And there's value in that because once everybody's on board and aligned and and there's trust, a lot of it comes down to trust, then you can actually execute a lot faster and make decisions a lot faster. So slow down before you speed up. I think that's a, it's a a common phrase, taking that time up front to 
cultivate the conditions for the team to thrive and work across these differences. And this is actually an interesting segue into thinking a little bit about your experience working in cross-functional teams. So we've spent a lot of time talking about cross-cultural dynamics. I'm curious because you have spent a lot of time working in cross-functional teams and leading these teams. I'm curious, what do you think are some of the challenges that you've faced as a leader working in this kind of context and some things maybe you would do differently? As a strategy professional, most of what I do is working with cross-functional teams because I'm always looking and working across the business. I think one of the challenges I commonly see is that cross-functional teams, they're wearing a functionally specific hat. So they're looking at the world through this lens or optimizing for X. So it's often hard for them to appreciate that another team is optimizing for Y. I actually see these as really healthy tensions. Each function is there with with their own objective for a purpose in the organization. And it's working together and bringing the power of all those different perspectives that leads to a better business outcome that makes us stronger as a team. But it is challenging when folks are used to working and looking at the world through their functional lens for them to empathize with another function's perspectives. And that's really where oftentimes in my role, I come in to help clarify the overarching goal and where we're going. And that's the tool that I find really valuable is just starting out by what are our goals What are our principles or considerations, right? What are the parameters of what we're solving for? Another tool that I use is reframing. So I hear person A say this, I hear person B say this. It sounds like collectively we agree on this and we disagree on this. And bridging those perspectives, rephrasing and reframing things to help people actually see the commonality. That's one thing I love. Like I love finding commonalities and differences, right? I love this when I travel and you get to see similarities uh, across very different cultures. And I think it's true in the workplace or a big part of what I do is helping teams find those similarities and then isolate the the differences or the areas that require further alignment and, and decision making. It's interesting to think about this from the perspective of solving problems, but also in terms of building relationships across differences. And the, the same concepts apply in terms of thinking about how do we ratchet it up enough to a place where there's overlapping either identities or overlapping perspectives around the problem that we can then ratchet back down and see the differences. And something I'm really interested in is this concept of mutual positive distinctiveness, which is a team's capacity to value both our similarities and differences as we strive towards a shared purpose. And so I think in many ways, this ability to move up and down levels becomes really critical, even conceptually in how we think about that. I want to shift gears a minute because I've had a few things that have come to me in the last few days. I've been working with our executive MBA program. And one of the things that's on their mind, particularly, is thinking about leading in this moment in COVID-19, where there's so much uncertainty for people. Sean and I were just talking about the fact that When we started this, it was a little novel and maybe introverts thrive and extroverts were at first a little caught off guard, but they've also found their way a bit. But now people are starting to notice two things. One is levels of engagement are declining. So inside of their teams, people feeling a bit less engaged. 
Because one of the, one of the concerns is people are feeling Zoom fatigue. So is there any way that you've found to kind of get around that? Oh, that's an, that's an interesting one. But I will talk a little bit about counteracting screen time as you think about your own individual life. Mm. Um, so let me come to that in a second. But I think it's also equally important to have regular team meetings where information is being shared, where leaders mm. are providing pass downs, because again, all those water cooler conversations have disappeared. For me personally, the jury is out whether communication flows are better or worse during COVID. Possibly worse because we've lost all those informal interactions. Possibly better because I certainly see people using um, instant messenger a lot more often. So perhaps there's actually more information being exchanged. I don't know. But as a leader, I think it's really important to make sure you are passing on as much information as possible to your team. And the third thing I would say is over communicate, right? In the same spirit, but not just in team meeting settings, but in all settings, over communicating around expectations, around uh, company or organizational priorities. And so that's a lot of things around connection and communication. And then the other thing I would share is think of employees as, okay, I'm going to use a business concept, but as segments with different needs. There's been a lot of discussion around uh, parents in the time of COVID and the challenges of working from home while managing kids. And now as the school year starts, managing all virtual learning for another school year. That's one segment. Another segment that I hear is also having a different set of challenges with COVID is singletons. So people that are single or not married, they may be living alone. And then you could add a third situation, which is people in roommate situations. That's a lot of time to be, you know, in the same physical environment with your roommate. So there's those are just a few uh, examples. Just know that there are different segments and they're all going to have different needs and bring that awareness and empathy to the team. That actually builds on another major concern that students were really wanting to hear about and thinking about how COVID has led to increased stress and anxiety mm-hmm. among mm-hmm. people in organizations and how that then plays out at the team level. And I think it plays in a little bit to the, some of the things you're talking about. We don't have these informal ways to connect. So often when we're feeling anxious or uncomfortable, we go to the water cooler or we knock on someone's door and say, hey, <laughs> I'd love to get your thoughts on this. But now it becomes a formal exercise. Do you have any thoughts on some things that, that you found to be successful in helping mitigate that or minimize that for people? If we just even start with anxiety, you mentioned how we've lost those informal opportunities to knock on someone's door or grab them at the water cooler and have that chat. I think there's that layer to it. And then the second layer is there's a whole bunch of new sources of anxiety. So our old kind of mechanisms for handling stress and anxiety have evaporated with this work from home context. And then we have all these new sources of anxiety. So I think it's important to recognize those two layers. In terms of what's inducing anxiety, I actually want to spend a minute and say, let's not ignore the external environment. Yes, of course. Because it's like I can see in my own life, every day, week, month, new 
challenges are emerging, but new opportunities are emerging also. But it's an incredible amount of uncertainty. I'm someone who likes to plan. So this has been, you know, this is not well suited to someone who likes to plan. So that's important to recognize it. And that has a, a cascade of effects in terms of people, maybe they were planning to move. Maybe they were planning to get married. Those, all these, maybe they have family members that they haven't seen in, in you know, seven months or 10 months. All these factors add up. And then you have inside the company as the external environment is so uncertain, not just from a public health perspective, but also I think from an economic perspective, it's very common for people to wonder about job security, for example, or balancing work and childcare. I think those are common sources of anxiety as well as the social isolation. Let's not underestimate that social isolation. There's also a lot of anxiety around not knowing when we can go back to the office, but also the thought of going back to the office. So that also creates a lot of uncertainty, like feels like the ground is constantly shifting underneath your feet. In terms of how to mitigate that, I think first as a leader, you have to create an environment where people feel comfortable voicing what they're feeling and what they're experiencing. Because if they don't feel that psychological safety, there's a good chance you don't even know what's what's going on. Something that I've found in my own experience is that doesn't just happen in, in your weekly team meeting. That culture of psychological safety and trust is developed through every single interaction you have with your team. And it's often it comes down to simple things. In your one-on-ones, do you engage with them on a personal note? Do you spend a few minutes asking about their weekend, asking how they're doing, asking what's the latest Netflix show that they're binge watching, <laughs> which is, you know, I mean, that's, well, that's something we all have in common now. So that that is a place where we can all connect. Creating a little space and time to connect as people, as individuals. Secondly, just remembering, yes, a lot of businesses might be under pressure right now, but try not to bring that pressure into those interpersonal interactions. I don't want to say always be positive because it's important to be balanced and and provide a realistic outlook, but make sure you're managing your own stress as a leader. I went through a transition myself where I was navigating this world where the things that structured my day, driving to the office and driving back, had disappeared. I kind of fumbled through it for the first several weeks, and then I created my own routine, created a new sense of routine, which has been really powerful for me, and it's helped me see actually having the right scaffolding in place for your life is really important. Another way to think about it is like, what are the bookends or what are the things that at the beginning and end of your day that are outside of work? right? So how do you almost create a container for work and then make sure outside of that work container, you have things that nourish you. So for me, it's I start my day with a walk and I end my day with a walk. And that just that physical activity getting outside has been really constructive for me during COVID. That's such an important and insightful reflection is this idea of how do we scaffold ourselves outside of our environment and outside of our teams so that when we do come to our teams that we actually can be a part of the scaffolding for our teams as they navigate this incredible uncertainty. So I have two final questions. One question I have is, as we started this conversation, you shared with us that you were born in India, but you spent most of your time in Australia. We also know that you've lived in France for a period of time, and you work in a very large global 
organization. And I'm curious from your perspective, how do you think this experience navigating these variety of cultures, both individually and also in your work life, have developed and informed you as a leader, just broadly? Like one of the most memorable experiences I had was I, I studied abroad during business school. I studied in Paris. You won't be surprised. <laughs> <laughs> and we never talked about why I went to Paris. So maybe I should circle back on that at some yeah, point. Yeah, please but do. <laughs> we'd love that. So yeah, I studied abroad and I took negotiations while I was studying abroad. Mm. Now, that meant I missed out on taking negotiations with Holly Schroth, which is what <laughs> all of my classmates were talking about back at Berkeley. But I got to take negotiations with a very international group of folks from Spain, from France, from the United States, from Asia. And I learned so much about how to negotiate across cultures. You know, the I don't want to stereotype, but you could see different modes of negotiation in those settings. So I think understanding how different cultures approach business also sets you up to be more effective as a leader in a global business economy. And then third, I think it invites an openness and a curiosity about other people's stories and other people's journeys and whether they have grown up in another country or whether they have grown up in the United States. We may be in the Bay Area, but we have the opportunity to work with people who've grown up in the Midwest, in the South, on the East Coast, and each of those regions has a little bit of a different culture. And at the end of the day, that is whatever company you're working for your user base is distributed across the country and across the world. So it's important to draw out and understand those perspectives. It, it brings me back to my favorite defining principle, which is students always. I think curiosity is such an important capacity as a leader in terms of how we lead people, but also how we lead across the outcomes that we're trying to generate within a team of individuals who are bringing unique and diverse perspectives, both in terms of their cognitive capacity, but also in terms of their lived experiences and the social identities they bring to bear on how they think about a problem. So my last question for you, I'm curious, what's something that you admire most when you see it in action in a leader? I really admire when leaders show up as whole people. I have a whole person philosophy, bring your whole self to work. I appreciate when you can see that there's many parts to that leader's identity than their kind of professional identity. And it shows up in simple ways. It's talking about your family, talking about outside interests. HBR did a piece on the habits and behaviors of CEOs. And that's one thing that they surface is they have outside interests. They have other things that shape their lives. And so I think that's really important. And that's also really important for just being connected with the world that we are serving as business leaders. So I say that's the trait that I admire most is when leaders show up as whole people. And for me, it makes them, it makes a leader relatable. And it's interesting because as you think about that, it's the capacity of allowing us to ratchet up to our humanity, to mm -hmm. what keeps us common and relatable and connected right. so that we can come back down and also recognize what's unique and special about us too. Absolutely. Thanks, Nandita. This was amazing. Thank you so much. This yeah. has been yeah. great. Yeah. Thank you. I really enjoyed this. So thank you so much for mm -hmm. inviting me for, for this opportunity. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of the One Haas Podcast. If you enjoyed our show today, please remember to hit that subscribe or follow button on your favorite podcast player. 
We'd also really appreciate it if you could give us a five-star rating and review. You can also check out more of our content on our website at haaspodcast.org. That's podcast with an S at the end, where you can subscribe to our monthly newsletter and check out some of our other Berkeley Haas podcasts. Until next time, go Bears.